0: EU Confidential will get started right after this message.
1: Today's episode is presented by Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs believes that when women lead, everything changes. Because in today's world, gender equality is an economic imperative and a catalyst for long-term growth. Learn more at GS.com/slash lead.
0: I thank Greece for being
2: our European aspida in these times.
3: Translate as as SHIELD.
0: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on a visit to Greece's border with Turkey this week. She was there with European Council President Charles Michel and the President of the European Parliament, David Sassoli, to show solidarity with Greece and definitely not to take questions from reporters. The trio held a press conference without letting the press do any pressing. It does feel like the EU has shifted into crisis mode this week with the humanitarian crisis in Syria becoming a migration crisis for the EU. And then there's the coronavirus with the EU launching a response team, governments announcing various emergency measures and the UK unveiling its own action plan. So let's talk about those stories and what Super Tuesday in the US Democratic primaries might mean for Europe with our podcast panel. Reem Momtaz is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Uh, Annabel Dixon's in London. Hi, Annabel. Hello. And Matt Karnichnik is on a stakeout in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Abend. Good night, yeah. Uh, we have the the joy which you don't have as a listener of 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 seeing everyone, and we can see Matt in his car, such as his commitment to the uh, to the podcast that he's pulled over to join us. I'm on a
4: hot story. Okay,
0: wow, can't can't wait to see it. Uh, probably not during the day, right? J- judging by your normal filing times. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uh, let 's uh, get started with migration, which suddenly uh, seems to have come back if you like to to haunt the eu it 's a problem or a challenge they didn 't manage to really rise to uh, last time as as an organization uh, anyway and This is a topic you know we we talked about last week uh, Syria, and of course, things escalated there after uh, we spoke. And then we had uh, a Turkish president, Erdogan, basically saying the borders are open now. If refugees want to go to Europe, we're not going to stop them. And uh, we've seen a, an escalation on the border, particularly with, with Greece. Uh, Matt, what do you
4: make of it? Do you have kind of deja vu from last time or is it different this time? Well, it does seem to be the same, but different, if if you know what I mean. On, on on the one hand, you know it, it's it's clearly disgusting to see what uh, Erdogan is doing here by by using people as kind of a bargaining chip in this you know kind of chess game he has going on with 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 Europe on the one hand and you know over what's going on in Syria on the other. But on on the other hand, you know one has to acknowledge from the European side that. You know, he's been complaining about the the situation there for quite some time. Turkey has taken in almost 4 million refugees, which is vastly more than the rest of the EU combined. And they haven't really thought through how they're going to... Handle the refugee situation in Europe now. Once the the current deal, the 2016 deal, uh, effectively runs out, or at least that that pot of money that's in there uh, is, is is no longer available. So I, I think that you know this is one of those situations where Europe was hoping this problem would go away, and and now it's you know we're again in crisis mode. And I thought the kind of greatest symbol of this uh, fact so far was was this picture that circulated around Twitter yesterday. Of, of von der Leyen sitting in the the back seat of a of a car or a truck with uh, Boyko Borisov, the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, driving her and Michelle, um, you know, around the border region of of Bulgaria. And there, there's a lot of sort of symbolism in in that picture. Not only the fact that she's sitting in the back seat.
0: Yeah, well, as uh, some people may have seen, uh, I tweeted, I wasn't sure about this new version of Carpool Karaoke. Um, but uh, it's certainly, as ever with uh, Borisov, who is a great uh, servant to EU transparency, gave us a glimpse behind the scenes that we otherwise uh, don't normally get. Reem, what do you make of it all?
2: I mean, what can one say in front of this uh, spectacle? Does it really take Erdogan uh, in engaging in this kind of blackmail to get some kind of reaction from the EU. Uh, You know, if you were an alien just arriving on Earth, you'd be forgiven uh, for thinking that perhaps the war in Idlib had just started about two weeks ago. Why? Why did it take Erdogan resorting to this kind of measure to finally hear all sorts of ideas from German leaders and Dutch leaders and the Dutch are talking about a no-fly zone, but, you know, only the Assad Air Force. Now, let's not talk about Russia. Let's not talk about the Russian Air Force uh, not only enabling the Assad uh, Air Force, but also carrying out their own bombing against civilians and hospitals in Idlib. Uh, you know, the German Chancellor and the German Defense Minister talking about some sort of security zone, but please don't take it to mean the technical sense of the word, because God forbid that would mean actually having to engage, you know, practically in putting that uh, in, in place.
4: It's a security zone without security is what they're talking. Yeah,
0: about. that seems right. to be it. It's so secure it doesn't need anybody to secure it.
2: Nobody to secure it and apparently all of this is going to be resolved by Erdogan and Putin who by the way are meeting alone bilaterally which again highlights just how irrelevant the EU is. So Of course, all they can do is, you know, go to the border. And perhaps it's good for European citizens to see that at least, you know, this new crop of EU executives is uh, at least trying to do something and not waiting for a crisis to unfold. But also, let's not fall for both sides, you know, Turkish and Greek exaggerations. This is by no means near any kind of refugee influx or crisis as in 2015. The numbers are nowhere near that. We're barely talking about tens of thousands at this stage. Barely.
0: Yeah, that's true. Not yet, in any case. Um, a lot of it is clearly being, you know, stage managed um, for, you know, for different purposes on different sides. But one of the things, um, you know, that's been interesting to come out of this, Annabelle, there was really quite some strong symbolism uh, yesterday when the EU leaders were all up at the border, uh, the Greek-Turkish border, expressing solidarity with Greece. And then just around the same time, a press release drops from the UK Foreign Office with Dominic Raab expressing solidarity with Turkey um how do you explain that and how much is the uk kind of plowing its own furrow here with Turkey
5: I think it was probably more coincidence than anything but certainly it's pretty symbolic he was on a pre-planned visit wanting to talk about some great trade deal he couldn't exactly start sort of taking the EU side While he was there. I mean, within that statement, he did um, express his support for the EU Turkey deal on migration. So I don't think there's any sort of great sense that, that it's going to be the UK and Turkey versus the EU on this. And it's certainly, I think it's in it's in the UK's interest for the EU and Turkey to to sort this out. It's it's not something that's sort of got a huge amount of attention um, in the UK press.
0: Yeah, and but the thing that does seem to be dominating the headlines. Just to switch topics, I watched the the BBC News at ten last night. And I think it was about twenty minutes straight of coronavirus, and that seems to be the other uh, big big topic. And I just wanted to get a sense of each of you, you know, in your capitals. What's the mood? What's the feeling like around coronavirus? How much are you seeing the effects of coronavirus? And, you know, what is uh, each government or authority doing about it? Are they all on the same page? Uh, Reem, how is it in Paris?
2: You know, it's been interesting because it seems quite, uh, calm in Paris. And I saw a poll go by today that said that basically a majority, 75% more or less, if I'm not mistaken, of the French are not really panicked about, you know, how this is going to go down. Uh, that being said, we did see Macron completely change his agenda on Monday to adjust it, uh, to focus it much more around managing the crisis of coronavirus as, as we were told by the Elysee, by his office. Um, And then we saw him go to the sort of center uh, for dealing with medical emergencies and, and, uh, uh, you know, one to show people that, you know, they have a a handle on things. They're also uh, taking over all the stocks of medical masks uh, in France. That also means, by the way, uh, these French companies not being able to deliver uh, these masks to their foreign international clients, uh, because the government has taken them over and they've taken them over uh, to make sure that there isn't speculation on the prices as we would have as we have seen in other countries and to make sure that only those who really need them aka those who already have coronavirus uh, have access to them people in the subway are definitely if you sneeze or if you cough people kind of look at you like whoa stay away Uh, but uh, other than that you know it's pretty anecdotal at this stage
0: Right. Well, we did, uh, here in Brussels, I did see somebody on the metro with a mask on, which I did find uh, a bit unnerving because, uh, as you say, that's really only of any use if you have the coronavirus. And I thought, if you have the coronavirus, you know, you shouldn't be on the metro. And if you don't have it, you don't need a mask. But, uh, there, you know, that's the, there is a bit of a sense, I think, of, I wouldn't go so far as panic, but certainly nerves. And you can see that also within the EU institutions here in Brussels. The parliament cancelled about 100 events but some events went ahead and that in turn also prompted criticism because Greta Thunberg was here this week uh, for the unveiling of the new climate law proposed by the Commission. And then, of course, you had MEPs saying, hey, how come Greta Thunberg's coming to the Parliament but all the other events have been cancelled? So there is a feeling, and uh, you know, we now have a couple of cases in the inst- EU institutions, so there is this feeling of, of mounting uh, unease a little bit. Chaos might be going so f- too far, but it certainly feels like... Uh, People are all kind of caught a bit off balance by this. And here, uh,
2: there's there's a running question about whether the upcoming local elections, which are supposed to take place on the fifteenth of March and then on the twenty second of March, are they going to be postponed?
0: Right. And I've heard they just seem to be different rules on gatherings. Right. There's rules that you know, certain over a certain number of people shouldn't be gathering in one place.
2: A French minister was asked about this this morning on French radio because they cancelled all, all sorts of um, sort of events except for the football matches, and she said the reason for that is because. Because the football matches, it's open air, um, and people aren't sort of spitting on each other, which is or touching each other that much, which is how things would be transmitted. <laughs> She's never
0: been to a Scottish football match. I'll tell you that, uh, Matt. What's the sense in Berlin? This is a big moment for for Jens Spahn, the health minister.
4: Yeah, this, that's right. And you know, he's sort of running as the junior candidate on this this uh, ticket with Armin Laschet to become the next uh, head of the of the CDU. And if, if all goes well, it, it, it should really improve, prove his, uh, stature. He's already kind of seen as a, as a man of the future. But I think, you know, right now it's, it's just too early to say there is a lot of nervousness here. You, you see that in, in the tabloids, but also on the street. They have canceled some major events, not quite of the, of the, uh, kind of Greta category. Although I think many people would probably rather have coronavirus than upset, uh, Greta. Uh, but they did cancel the leipzig book fair and they uh cancelled a um a very large tourism fair in Berlin. And, and these are things that have real economic impact on on the community. And they're, they're also now um, talking about whether they're going to have to cancel the Hanover Industry Fair, which is the largest industry fair in, in the world.
0: Yeah, well, that brings us to Annabelle. How is, you know, what does Brexit mean for, for the coronavirus? What approach is the UK taking? And, and how does it feel in London at the moment? Are you seeing a lot of, you know, visible signs of, of the impact or, or at least the concerns about coronavirus?
5: Well, there's always a Brexit angle to every story. Um, Yeah, afraid so. In terms of the impact, um, everyone seems pretty calm, actually. I sneezed in an Uber the other night and he opened all the windows. That's about (laughs) as (laughs) bad. They're as yeah. panicked as anyone's yeah. got
0: well that's the most 21st century thing i can think of almost go ahead
5: <laughs> yeah other than now it's pretty calm but yeah i guess when my co- our colleague ashley asked um the prime minister he um he came out of hiding this week and held a cobra meeting which is um the sort of emergency meeting it's called cobra because it's held in cabinet office briefing room a which is sounds very um sort of cloak and dagger. But actually asked him about it at, at the press conference and he was just very keen to emphasise global Britain. Um so he's he's using it as an opportunity. And I guess unless there's proof that people are suffering because we're not part of the sort of European conversation, it will probably be a peripheral peripheral issue. Remainers will probably complain about it. Um Brexiteers will probably say, fantastic, look, we don't need the European Union. We can deal with this globally.
0: OK, let's move on across the Atlantic briefly. Matt, you wanted to mention Super Tuesday, uh, the you know latest in the round of uh, democratic primaries. Uh, it looks like the field is uh, thinning out pretty rapidly there. Is there anything we can say about what it means for, for Europe at this stage?
4: Well, I just thought it was interesting this morning and throughout the day to talk to people here in Berlin who, you know, have kind of renewed hope that the United States is is not uh, completely lost uh, to, to Europe. There's been, you know, almost a kind of gallows kind of humor going on about the the upcoming election in the united states and with biden biden is somebody that europeans know well germans in particular um he's been a real standard bearer of of the transatlantic alliance for a long time i but w- one just has to wonder if if they're getting a bit ahead of themselves um after after his uh, string of wins over the over the last uh, several hours pretty much interest
0: in France? Is it getting much coverage? And, you know, are people you talk to in political circles following it closely, rooting for Biden?
2: Super Tuesday definitely uh, was was very much covered. Um, you know, all the French big media have correspondents in the US right now that were sent especially to cover Super Tuesday. And, you know, there yes, there's a familiarity with Biden. Uh, that being said, among officials, and it's very interesting, because you hear it from the president um, onward, you know, Emmanuel Macron has been one of the uh, people for the past few years who has said, you know, he doesn't consider Trump to be an exception or an Aberration. He considers him to be, you know, part of the American uh, political landscape. He doesn't think that, regardless, whoever wins uh, in November in the U.S., uh, he doesn't. He's not one of those who thinks, oh, great, it's going to be sort of the return to whatever normal means, aka before the Trump administration, Uh, because you know people around uh, Emmanuel Macron, but also Macron has said this publicly. uh, They consider that the Obama administration had also started its own kind of retreat from the world in its own way. I mean, certainly it wasn't as brash and harsh um, and kind of in your face as as Trump is. But um, in general, they don't think that it's going to go back to normal.
0: Right. And if, if not a retreat from the world, then obviously, you know, very much advertised uh, under the Obama administration as a pivot to Asia. So that idea that America's just going to be less focused on Europe and, and people need to get used to that. Uh, but Annabel, what's been the reaction in the UK? Because the UK follows American politics, certainly in the kind of political circles, incredibly closely, I think. I mean, it, you know, generally people know a lot more about American politics than they do about European politics.
5: Yeah, absolutely. U- UK politics, people love uh, US politics, and they all think they're experts. Um, which or or think... at least
0: extras in the in the West Wing or, uh, yeah, you know.
5: Exactly. Well, we all love our, love our American um, Netflix dramas, but um, UK politics Twitter was awash this morning. Um, I particularly enjoyed um, Arch Remainer and Blairite cabinet minister Andrew Adonis. Um, his conclusion this morning was that I think the Democrats may have just won the presidential election. Talk about Bold. getting ahead of yourself.
0: Bold. Yeah. Okay, I think we better uh, leave it there. Uh, Matt, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much.
5: Thank you. Thanks.
0: That was our podcast panel coming to you from Brussels, Berlin, Paris and London. Before we get to our feature interview this week with Syrian doctor Amani Balour, we have a quick message from this week's sponsor.
1: A message from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs believes that when women lead, everything changes. Because in today's world, gender equality is an economic imperative, so supporting women's economic empowerment means supporting growth. At Goldman Sachs, commitment to female empowerment spans four critical areas, philanthropic, commercial, academic, and cultural. The philanthropic pillar focuses on communities by empowering women entrepreneurs worldwide through the 10,000 Women Program. The commercial pillar is driven by an investing strategy centered on diverse-led startups, anchored by initiatives like Launch with GS. The academic pillar focuses on the firm's Global Markets Institute and its groundbreaking work analyzing gender gap trends. And the cultural pillar focuses on Goldman Sachs' own people by making diversity and inclusivity a mandate across the firm. Learn more at www.gs.com winwomenlead.
0: And now let's talk more about Syria, but from a different perspective. Our producer, Cristina Gonzalez, met Syrian paediatrician Dr Amani Balour during a recent visit to Brussels. Balour spent six years working in a secret underground hospital in eastern Ghouta, Syria. The hospital is now known internationally as The Cave after a National Geographic documentary about Balour and the hospital was nominated for an Oscar. Bellour was in Brussels to meet with EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell and members of the European Parliament to appeal for their help for the victims of the conflict in her home country.
6: Um, I'm Annie Bellour, a Syrian female doctor. Uh, I was studying medicine uh, for six years, and I graduated in 2012 uh, when the uh, revolution, Syrian revolution, started. Uh, I wanted to help people. I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I couldn't complete studying because uh, of the revolution and because of Assad regime started to kill people, to besage them, to bomb them. I saw these innocent people, the women and children, are being killed, and they need help. A lot of doctors decided to flee. And that's why I wanted to stay to help these people because they need help. And I'm a doctor and I can help them. And you ended up
3: volunteering in what now is known as the cave, right? Which is this underground hospital, 65 feet underground. Can you tell us a bit about the experience for people who may not have seen the documentary? Just to give us a sense of what that was like, what that experience was like.
6: Uh, it was very it was very difficult, it was a very bad period of the time, under bombing, under siege, we have nothing, we were few doctors and we don't have, uh, we have some medicine, some medical supplies and uh, we were hungry, we were afraid, uh, under bombing all the time, the war bands in the sky all the time, they use all the types of weapons to kill people. And uh, as a doctor 's to work underground hospital, it was dark it was wasn't it wasn 't healthy it't it, it didn 't supposed to be underground, but because they bombed the hospital uh, all the hospital and destroyed it, we were forced to work underground and that was very difficult and to me especially because I was working as pediatrician and i didn 't have a uh, long experience to to work as pediatrician, but I forced to see uh, every day about three or forty child because there were few pediatricians in al and uh, I had to do that, I had to do that. And uh, every day I saw these children, they were afraid, they were all the time saying, we are afraid, we are hungry, and I can, I can, I can do nothing for them. It was very, very difficult. And to see all the world are watching, we are in 21st century and we, we, have, we had hope that someone will help us, the international community will end the siege, stop bombing, stop killing the children, or do something, evacuate the children the patients, but they do nothing, they are still watching, and they, they are still watching now. That makes us very frustrated, and uh, yeah, it was very difficult circumstances.
3: When it comes to medical supplies, you just mentioned that. How, how does that happen um, in terms of receiving medical supplies? Were you um, in contact with the UN, for example, as to where you were located? How does that communication work to the outside world?
6: Yeah, at the beginning of the siege, you know, Assad regime and Russia bombed some hospital and destroyed, it. We take, we took this uh, medical equipment and some medicine and start working. After about a year or or two year, we had we had nothing and some people died because of lack of medicine. But after that, we uh, made tunnels uh, underground to to smuggle some medicine and some medical supplies. Some uh, medical organization out of Syria uh, support us, send money, and we we pay very high prices to the moderator to buy some medicine and medical supplies. Of course, we couldn't, be, uh, we couldn't uh, uh, buy everything, just what they allow us to buy. We, were, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of things. For example, the cancer patients, they need uh, chemical therapy, and a lot of them died because we don't have, we didn't have. Yeah, What, what we have, we, we work in, but it was very difficult to get it. Mm-hmm. The UN, I remember for about six years, they entered al two, twice or three times and they brought very few medicine and food for children. And they made a big problem because thousands of children, they need food and they brought just some food. And, you know, it's very difficult to choose who you give this food for. It was very difficult for us. But I, I think the UN and all the people, everyone, um, they, they let us down. Mm. Does that include the EU and the European Union countries in Europe? Yeah, I, I, yeah all the people, all the countries who can help, the international community, because they were watching. They, they saw the chemical attack in 2013, where they killed about uh, more than 1,000 people, were killed in one night. They were suffocated by, by sarin gas. And all the people watch that, watch the photos and the videos, and they do nothing for us. After that, we were very hopeful that all the people will, will help us now because it's a very big crime to, to happen, to kill more than 1,000 people. Most of them were children, and they were sleeping. It was at midnight. All the people were sleeping. And they, they bombed us with sarin gas. It's a very brutal way to, to kill the people. And we were watching the people were suffocating in front of us. And all the people around the world know that. They know that, they saw that, but they do nothing for us.
1: Mm.
6: In
3: 2016, you took over as the manager of the underground hospital. And as best as I understand it, that was also a bit controversial, being a female doctor who is running um, such an important hospital. Uh, can you just tell us a bit about that reaction?
6: Yes, I was working in this hospital for about three or four years before becoming a manager and I I know everything in this hospital I know what we we need I have a plan to develop the hospital to expand it and I wanted to be a manager to the hospital and my colleagues vote to me and support me to be a manager but uh, my community and the main in my community especially, they say, no, you can't because you are woman. This is a very uh, long culture, traditions in our community about women that uh, you, you have to stay at home, you, you have to get married, and have children, and this is everything. Or they say to me, you can be a pediatrician in your clinic or a doctor for women, but not to be a manager of the hospital, it's not your position it's for men and a lot of people a lot of men when they come to the hospital they say when they ask about the manager and tell me they say don't you have men to talk with they said that because yeah, this is the, the culture in our community and I really wanted to, to change this culture because I believe no difference between men and women. I was working as a doctor with my colleagues uh, in the same circumstances. We were together under bombing in the same hospital. So I can do as they can do. Uh, that's why I wanted to be a manager and to try to change this image about women to approve that women can do more.
3: Do you think that's worked? Do you think that you have changed things for women?
6: Yes, uh, yes, I did because at uh, uh, the last time before uh, displacement, some men came to me, and the, the hospital was sacked and uh, Assad regime and dress upon the hospitals around us. They destroy it, but they couldn't destroy my hospital, the cave, because we protect it very well and make the tunnels. And some men came to me and said, uh, "You were right, and you you could do a great job." And I was very happy because we could change them. They have very long culture and they are very extreme, but we, we could change them this is very important to know that there's not, nothing impossible to change we can change everything in 2018 you made the tough choice to leave yeah can you talk
3: about the decision to leave and then your journey as best as I understand it was to Idlib and then to Turkey can you tell yeah. us a bit about that decision and your journey
6: yes we wanted to stay of course we didn't want to leave and it wasn't our choice to leave you know Assad regime in Russia and Iran started a very brutal campaign against al ghouta in March 2018 and they started to, to bomb every second and they use all the kinds of weapons, they used the chemical, all the kinds of weapons they destroy the hospital they destroyed about 10 hospitals last time so we don't have we didn't have a choice and then we, all the civilians stay in just two small villages after that some negotiation between the Russian leader and the People there, and the Russian leader said to, to them, you, you should leave in the buses, we can bring you buses to leave, or we will kill all of you. They don't care, they killed a lot. And we know they, they can kill us, so we said, Yes, yeah, we will leave. And it wasn't our choice to stay. Yeah, we, we live to the Idlib, and in Idlib, the same scenario, the same thing. They bomb everything in Idlib, and still now. They they do everything now. What you saw in the movie and what happened in Lughoda is not something from the past. It's still happening now. People are being killed, are being bombed. People are dying in the camps now, are dying because of coldness. So this is still happening.
3: Mm. I'm curious, in Idlib, some say that this is a focal point of jihadists' How does that strike you?
6: Yeah, there are some, some groups of uh, extreme groups in Idlib, in but that uh, don't uh, justify to kill all the civilians. There, there were millions of civilians, and they are suffering because of these people and because of bombing, because of Assad regime and Russia and uh, Iran. So these people need help because they are humans. And I, think, I believe that international community uh, is their responsibility to help them. To protect them, protect them from everything. There are now, uh, millions of them are in the camps now, and there's no jihadists in the camps. And they don't help them, they are just watching them dying. Do you think that Europe will step up now, given
3: the news coverage of the last couple of days and weeks?
6: I have a hope. There's st- still, I uh, have a hope because people are dying now and they, they need help. It's nine years. It started for nine years, but uh, we, we still need help. And that's why I'm here in Europe. I'm trying to meet uh, politicians, to meet people who can help us. Try to tell them about the situation, about the humanitarian needs. Try to, to make pressure, tell them the stories, what I see in Syria. I hope they can help me.
0: That was Dr. Amani Balour in conversation with our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please rate us by clicking some stars or leaving a review. I know some of you probably tune out at this bit because I say it every week, but we really do enjoy hearing your feedback. Drop us a line with ideas for topics, guests or anything else at podcast at political.eu I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.